this coming Friday night is a Good Friday service, and that's at 7 o'clock right here in this building, so I'd love to see you here for that on Friday evening. You know what you're called if you only come on Christmas and Easter? Priesters. Seriously, in the church world, <laughs> I hear people call individuals who only come on Christmas and Easter priesters. One time label. You can avoid that because you're here, so you're not priesters. All right. So when I uh, when I was ten years old, um, my my worst fears were realized. As a ten year old, my sister had told me that there were such things as doll graveyards, and I did not believe her. So one particular evening, and it was evening, my sister took me to this area where they had buried dolls. Now, mind you, she and her friends had told me the horrific stories of these dolls clawing their way out of the sand at night. It's real Toy Story stuff, okay? So she takes me to this doll graveyard one particular evening when I'm 10 years old and to show me what she and her friends had done to their dolls boggles the imagination. There were what I assumed to be Ken dolls. They were missing their heads. The only way I knew they were Ken is they had those plastic molded underwear on them and Barbie dolls with their hair in fray and things with arms missing and melted parts of their body and they had done the most amazing things to these dolls in this doll graveyard. So I was so scarred from this event that I determined whenever I had girls, I would never buy them dolls. <laughs> I would not allow them to discard their toys in that way. Well, sure enough, when my daughters turned two, three, four, they started asking for dolls. And with their big eyes, I had to give in to their request. But I never told them until this morning, this moment, about doll graveyards. They've never heard this before. My sister committed that act, so you can check with Aunt Margie about it, but it was terrible. Now, my daughters had their dolls. They had Ken dolls, and they had Barbie dolls, and, of course, I never knew there were so many Barbie dolls. There's shopping Barbie. There's Christmas Barbie. There's Visa Barbie. There's restaurant Barbie. Of course, there's Corvette Ken, and there's golfing Ken. They have all the accessories, They have all the clothing. They have everything they need to fit the need of the moment. They're interchangeable. They're actually quite a delight until you become bored with them. And I found this to be a reflection of our society as I watched my daughters and thought back about my own sister and her friends. How something that is so precious to us that we embrace and we hold so tightly becomes disposable. You can discard it. Once you become bored or it fails to meet your needs. So I'm going to invite you to look with me at this morning, this passage in John chapter 12, of how quickly we in our human nature embrace certain things, but then discard them. But as long as they fit our need for the moment, we embrace them. Jesus asked a really critical question that's very important for our day. He's walking to this region called Caesarea Philippi, country town, he's walking a long way with his disciples. Along the way, he stops and asks them a question. He says, who do people say that I am? Jesus wanted to know what people were thinking so that he could take the disciples to the next level of a conversation. As a matter of fact, pick it up with me on the screen so you can see the response to Jesus' question. Matthew 16, 13. 
Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Apparently, there was a lot of confusion around who Jesus was, the Jesus of the moment. Did He fit this particular picture? Kind of looks like John the Baptist, kind of acts like Jeremiah, perhaps Elijah, or one of the prophets. So Jesus asked a question next that He asked of you. Who do you say that I am? In response to those responses, Jesus turned the question back on the disciples. Now, Peter very proudly quickly spoke up and said, You are Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter gets a gold star. He nailed it. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Peter, son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. He understood that he wasn't the Jesus of the moment. He was the living God, never changing. So this critical question about who is Jesus, which Jesus is the real Jesus, I find especially applicable in our day and age. Because as you look around society, you see that there's all kinds of Jesuses. There's holiday Jesus. Uh, he's perfect for greeting cards at Christmas time. We see him show up in Hallmark programs. People really embrace him. There's coffee house Jesus. He's great for spiritual conversations. He drives a hybrid and he likes to talk about godly things. Okay, and then there's Republican Jesus. I'm going to tick some people off, so just know that in advance. Republican Jesus hates tax increases and he's against gun control and carries a nine millimeter. But then there's Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart and anything to do with a carbon footprint. You understand where this is going? We've got all kinds of Jesuses to fit our moment. There's Greenpeace Jesus. He walks through the woods playing a non-rhythmic flute and people can dance along and sing with him. Then there's the other kind of Jesus. It's a poverty Jesus that says, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And then there's Prosperity Jesus. And Prosperity Jesus says, you can have a mansion in a Mercedes. This is my favorite, touchdown Jesus. He usually shows up at the Super Bowl. He makes Christians run faster and jump higher than non-Christians. And then, of course, there's European Jesus. And we see him in the paintings that we have today. He has very high cheekbones and long flowing hair. And he has a blue sash across his chest. And he walks barefoot every place. And he sings, all you need is love, love is all you need. People have their Jesus for the moment, but Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, nails it. See, that Jesus is not the Jesus of the moment. That's the Jesus of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the same forever. He never changes. He's not a reflection of the current temperament of society. You're going to see a crowd this morning who's putting on the mask of cheerleader Jesus. They want him to be the conqueror. This is what John 12 exposes to us. Why does this happen? And here's an example of this. Previous to the story you're going to see this morning, Jesus had a whole bunch of people out in the countryside. We're told 5,000 people. And they had no food. So Jesus decides to feed them. Now, mind you, he's only got two loaves of bread and some fish. And out of that, he feeds 
thousands. So as a response to the crowd, they think, we're going to make him king. Yes, free food, Jesus. We want him as our leader. He's going to give us everything that we need. And they take him trying to by force. But Jesus doesn't allow it. So they're looking for the Jesus of the moment. In John chapter 12, we're going to find this morning that Jesus is at a dinner party because he's just resurrected Lazarus from the dead. He's called Lazarus from the tomb, and so Mary and Martha and Lazarus, brother and sisters, hold a big dinner party for Jesus at their house. This is where we're going to pick it up in John chapter 12 and verse 9. You'll see it up on the screen or you follow along in your Bible if you happen to have it this morning. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Now, this is a spectacular event, obviously. Jesus is out in the countryside. A large crowd had come to mourn with Mary and Martha. Their brother is dead. He's in the tomb. Four days, Scripture says. So this large crowd comes along, and they believe they're going to be mourners at a funeral, and it turns into a celebration. Now, mind you, the Passover is just about to start. And so there's a huge group of people that are in Jerusalem. They decide to make the two-mile journey over to Bethany where Jesus is at this dinner party so that they can see him firsthand. Looking through the window, he's in the living room feasting with his friends. And this huge crowd begins to gather around the house. Here's how we know it was huge because it happened at the Passover. We understand this from archaeology about the Jewish Passover, especially in the first century. Jerusalem appears to have been a town of about 160,000 people in a normal setting, normal day in and day out. During the Passover, it appears that it swelled to about 2.6 million people. Now, mind you, after individuals picked up all the available hotel rooms, they did all the living with relatives that they could in houses, they began camping outside the city. They went to Jerusalem State Park, that's full. They go to Bethany State Park, that's full. They keep moving outside, further and further outside the city to the point where this large crowd dominated the region. We understand that in AD 40, from a historical document that was written, that there were 260,000 sheep slain on Passover day. 260,000. Now, typically, they would slay one lamb for every 10 people. That's where that number, roughly 2.6 million, comes from. So looking at this, we'd say, this is a monumental crowd, a massive crowd. And they're hearing these reports. Can you imagine the excitement? As Michael described, these are people who are under the heel of Rome. And they hear that this Jesus is in their area. They've come from all around the Mediterranean Sea. They've gathered near this area called Jerusalem. And now they're hearing rumors, Jesus is in the area. And not only that, he's recently raised a man from the dead. This response of the crowd brought a crisis to those who were in leadership at this period of time. Their worst fears are being realized. And so their solution, because everybody's going towards Jesus is to kill Jesus. 
they decide, we're going to take him out because he's going to take away our power. Rather than seeing who he is, they want to eliminate him. And in their stupidity, and yes, I did use that word, in their stupidity, they decide to kill Lazarus also. We're going to kill the dead guy. How, how do you possibly conjure that in your mind? A dead man living, sitting among them, and they think nobody's going to notice that he's gone. In their stupidity, they decide they hatch this plot that they're going to kill Jesus and they're going to kill Lazarus. Pick it up with me on the screen, John eleven forty seven. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So you understand, at this point, they've got wanted posters of Jesus in all the post office. His face is all over Jerusalem's most wanted. Everybody understands that if you see Jesus, the high court has issued an order. Report him immediately to the authorities. Turn him in. So at this point in time, all eyes are looking for Jesus. Everybody is watching. They wonder, is he going to show up for Passover? Is he actually going to enter Jerusalem? So here's where we go, John 12, 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, that's the Passover feast we're talking about, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. So the next day is the morning after the dinner party. They just had the dinner party in Bethany. The next morning, this crowd begins to gather. Now, I'm guessing, just speculation, I believe this is the point where Judas betrayed Jesus. During the night, sometime at that point, it appears that he went to the Sanhedrin and offered Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, a deal that he struck with them. The reason I believe that is because we see in Scripture that after the woman poured perfume on Jesus, Judas was so irritated with that waste of money, in his head waste of money, that he ran out and went and found the leaders. So I'm guessing here at this parade, when it's about to begin, that Lazarus is there. Would you not be right next to Jesus if he just called you back from the dead? I'm thinking they could not separate Lazarus from Jesus. Now, mind you, Lazarus has spent four days in the tomb, meaning in the presence of God. He's seen who Jesus is. He knows he's the king of kings. He has understanding. No way you're going to separate him. So this large crowd that's come for the Passover, think like our Olympics, only over and over and over again, massive crowd, is broken down into three groups that I see. First of all, there's the group that came for Passover, this large 2.6 million group. Then you've got the group who are following Jesus every place because of the resurrection of Lazarus. And then you've got the people who actually live in the city, the 160,000. These three groups eventually converge. And in the midst of this, the leaders plan to kill Jesus and wipe him out. Only, they say, not during Passover, because everybody's going to know. So we'll wait till the crowds are dispersed. Look at me on the screen, Matthew 26, 4. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. But we know this, church, regardless of Satan's plans, God always accomplishes his plans, even though Satan stood against it and wanted it not to happen during Passover week. 
God said, my son is the lamb of God. And we know that Jesus became the Passover lamb on Passover day. He was our Passover sacrifice. This is what's remarkable to me about this passage. Jesus knew. He knew completely that the applause of the crowd is about to infuriate the Pharisees to the degree that they're going to be desperate to kill him. Even knowing this, on the day of celebration, he started down that hill. It wasn't on Thursday in the Garden of Gethsemane that he made up his mind to go ahead with it. He made up his mind well in advance. So no one took Jesus' life. He willingly gave it. He began this advance. So our passage says that they heard that Jesus was coming. So Jesus leaves Bethany where the dinner party took place. He begins a slight ascent up the Mount of Olives, gets to the peak, and at the peak is where the crowd appears, and they become pouring out of Jerusalem in huge numbers. I'm guessing not just tens of thousands. I believe hundreds of thousands. Mark 11 gives us a little insight in what took place, a little more detail than John. You'll see it on the screen. Mark 11:8. and many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Spreading your clothes before a ruler is not just something that was developed in the 1400s during the reign of the kings and queens in England for chivalrous purposes. It wasn't just to put your coat down when a woman walked up to a mud puddle so they wouldn't get their foot wet. This goes way back. It's an ancient practice. And what it represents is a one that puts their coat on the ground before a ruler. They're saying, I'm in submission under you. You can walk right over the things that I own. I bow before you. So what you see when they're bowing before him is spreading their coats before him so the people understand this is rooted way back in the days of the kings of old. Look with me on the screen, 2 Kings 9, 12. Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. At the coronation of a king, they spread their garments out so the king could walk on the soft surface. So you see, this is rooted, and they're saying, we place ourselves under your authority. Pick it up with me at verse 13 again. And began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. I want you to say a word with me. You might be very familiar with it because in the English, we say Hosanna. It's very much an English pronunciation. But in Hebrew, it sounds like this, Hosanna. So say that with me, Ho-shan-na. And they said it over and over again, Ho-shan-na, Ho-shan-na. And this is the literal definition for it. In Hebrew, it's the word yasha and na put together, and it means, oh, save. Now, these individuals would only say this to one who's capable of saving them. They're not just going to say it randomly. It's, It's asked of one who has the capacity to save. So the literal interpretation in Hebrew is, save now, I pray. Save now, I pray. Save now, I pray. So they're under the foot of Rome, and they're crying out for this one to rescue them. This has its roots in something that they heard earlier in the day. At every major Passover festival, a choir would gather on each morning of the festival, 
and stand on the steps of the temple. And this was a very large choir. And they would begin to sing the Hallel. And the Hallel comes from Psalm 15 to Psalm 118. It's these three chapters that makes up this cry to God to rescue. Now, I'm not going to give you all three chapters, just a couple verses, so you can see what these individuals who are lining the street heard earlier in the morning as Passover celebration started. Look with me up on the screen at Psalm 118, verse 5. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do to me. The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. Do you notice that passage? I will not fear what man can do to me. Let that register in your mind for just a minute because they're hearing this cried out throughout the Hallel. Go with me to verse 14. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And anytime you see the right hand of God referred to in the Bible, it's talking about the hand of power that wiped out the Egyptian army, that delivered them from Babylon. So they're looking at this valiant, powerful right arm of God. And they're crying out through the Hallel, deliver us with your mighty right arm. And they're using capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahovah, as we've been talking about through the book of John. Whenever you see that in the Bible, it's a substitution for Y-H-V-H, the unpronounceable name of God. So go with me to verse 25, and here's your word, Hoshana. Save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So right there at the very beginning of verse 25, Hoshana, and it's rooted in their ancient history. And they're singing it the morning of on the steps of the temple. And now they're crying it out in the streets. And they're swept up in the moment. And the crowds begin shouting, Hoshana, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahovah. And they repeat it over and over again. Would not the raising of Lazarus give confidence to those words? They've heard this one can bring people back from the dead. What can man do to me? I will not fear We've got the one who brings people back from death. Now think about what they've seen with this miracle worker. And so we get some more detail from Mark about what's going on here. Look on the screen, Mark eleven nine. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Ho Shana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in front of Jesus and behind Jesus and surrounding him, they go one step further and now they're calling him the king of Israel. Remember what you heard last week when we studied John? One, Nathaniel, the first time he saw Jesus, Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathaniel's response was, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. This is the same title they're using here. So the crowd begins with one loud voice to ramp the shouting up, because why? They've seen him heal paralytics, Paralyzed people are walking. Deaf people can hear birds singing. Blind people can now see sunsets. 
People have been fed, and now dead people are walking. Would you not join this crowd? They're yelling because of all these pieces are being put together. So as he enters Jerusalem, they know nothing can stop him. He is the one. He can shatter his enemies. Psalms 2 said that when the Messiah arrived, he could shatter the enemies like a broken rod. So they're thinking in their mind, just a word spoken. He can evaporate Pilate. He can remove the Roman soldiers. Will they see the power that God used over Egypt? Are they going to see angels sweep in? Are they going to see the mighty right arm of God destroy this Roman nation? So you understand why the frenzy is building, because they see him as God's son, the king of the universe. Pick it up with me in verse 14, because at this point, you're thinking Jesus is going to get on a big white horse. Verse 14, Jesus finding a young donkey sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Uh, Really, wouldn't you expect him to get on a white horse at this point? I mean, I'd love to see him get on a white steed, but that's not what Scripture foretold. As a matter of fact, we get to see him on a white horse in the future when he returns as the conqueror. But here, in this day and age, a king who came in peace always rode into the cities on a donkey. And Jesus isn't even just on a donkey. He's on a baby donkey. He's on the colt, the young donkey. Now, Jesus is using this as his announcement, saying, I am ready for action. It's just not the action that this crowd is expecting. He's not coming as conqueror Jesus. He's coming as Savior Jesus. And when the crowd figures that out, they're going to turn on him. They're going to throw him away like a Barbie or a Ken doll. He's disposable. He's no longer of use to them. But right now, they see him as the conqueror. So we see Jesus fulfilling Scripture, literally in Zechariah in the Old Testament. We're told that when Jesus would arrive, he would come on a colt. Look with me on the screen, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's a reference to Jerusalem. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Understand, that was written several hundred years before Jesus came. Go back to the time of George Washington. Try and find a detail that was written like that that just came alive in your lifetime. It just doesn't happen that way. Yet a literal prophecy literally fulfilled. So this choice of a mount of getting on a young donkey is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's what God said would happen because the white horse is in the future, like Revelation 19 says. Eventually, he comes as a conqueror. So here's verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Now, I suspect that the disciples came to this event, got to the top of the hill, expecting that they were going to encounter death. Remember in John 11, verse 16, it says, Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us go with him that we may die also. So they had it in their head because they knew the wanted posters were out. 
They knew that the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. So at this point, they're really thinking, we're dead men. We're coming into a fearful situation. What a shock to come over the crest of that hill and see the tens of thousands of people. I'm thinking at this point, Peter's starting to do high fives. He's like a rock star. Yeah, this is great. We're not going to die. Look at these people. They love us. What a crowd. But eventually it turned. But at this point, it's confusing to the disciples. So John writes, and he's an old man when he writes this. He's in his 90s looking back. These things the disciples did not understand. It didn't make sense to them. But eventually, when Jesus was resurrected and when he was glorified and the Holy Spirit came, they got it. They started putting the pieces together and they understand they did these things because it was written about Jesus. So verse 17, so the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. I told you when we started studying the book of John that you'd see legal terms. That's one of them, the word testify. The Greek word is martyrio, and it means to give a legal witness. So these individuals who stood at the tomb with Jesus, saw Lazarus resurrected, are now giving a legal witness. They're saying, we're testifying. We personally saw this. We are eyewitnesses. So these two groups now are beginning to coalesce into a huge crowd. The group who saw Jesus resurrect Lazarus, the group that's pouring out of Jerusalem. And at this point, the referee on the sideline decides, I'm throwing down a yellow flag because there's a violation here. And the yellow flag of violation is literally when they say to Jesus, silence this crowd. Don't let them call you the Messiah. Look with me up on the screen, Luke 19, 37. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Verse 38, shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Don't you just kind of wish they did go silent? Because it'd be fun to see those rocks start crying out. I'd love to see that description. Isaiah says that the trees of the land clap their hands. The mountains break forth in singing. Jesus is just reemphasizing what the Old Testament says. Nature cries out to me. That's why Revelation says there is a day when everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea will praise God to the glory of God the Father. They will acknowledge Jesus as their Savior. So Jesus is just playing in advance what's going to happen. If they stop, the rocks are going to bust open. Never seen a singing rock. That'd be cool. Verse 18, for this reason, all the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. Who's the people? So we've already talked about the crowd that's following Jesus because of the resurrection. We've talked about the group that's there for the Passover Who's the people? For this reason also the people are the Jews who live in Jerusalem. 160,000 people empty the city and go pouring out of the city along with the Passover festival people, along with the people who are following him because of the resurrection. And the streets of Jerusalem 
are empty. Nobody's in line at Starbucks. Nobody's in the mall shopping. They're all outside with Jesus. We get some insight here about what's going on and how superficial this crowd is, though. See that word, because? You don't mind circling in your Bible. I'd circle that word, because. For this reason, also the people went and met him. Because they heard that he was the Lamb of God? Because they knew he was going to die for their sins? No. Because he's the Jesus of the moment. He's warrior Jesus. He's resurrection Jesus. He's free food Jesus. They're beginning to celebrate because he's restoration Jesus, and he's going to return the kingdom back to Israel. And so the streets are emptied, and people are pouring out there, and they're crying, King of Israel! And at the end of the week, they're going to say, We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him! How quickly we throw away those things that we are drawn to when it's a superficial relationship. So simple to say, I belong to that. But when things turn tough, to abandon it and crucify him, do away with him. He didn't measure up to our expectations. He's not the political ruler. He's not the military ruler. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. So Jesus said there's a way you can measure how true of a disciple you are. Look with me on the screen, John 8, 31. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You're taking God's word and you're delving into it. You're studying it. You're following it. You're abiding by it. You're making it ingrained in your life. You hang out with people of like-mindedness. If you truly are my disciple, you're going to abide in my word. You're going to do the things that I asked you to do. That's his measuring rod. So it doesn't become the Jesus of the emotional moment. Verse 19, this is where it begins to wrap up. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good? Look, the world has gone after him. They begin pointing fingers very quickly. And I, true politicians, they're constantly monitoring the polls. They're looking that their approval rating is in the dumper. And they're saying, everybody's going to his side. Nobody's on our side. And they begin pointing fingers at each other. How ironic that the one they're desperate to capture is right there in their plain sight. And they can't do anything about it. Thousands of people around him. The paparazzi surround him. Everybody's in Jesus' camp. And they can't do a thing about it. I notice here that it says the, the enemy is constantly watching. Constantly watching. And it seems to them everything is spiraling out of control. Everything is being lost. Rome is going to come and stomp them down. And they're fearful they're going to lose their power. So they're saying, you're not doing any good. And this is reflecting their utter panic. Nothing is working our way. And it appears that their attempts to stop Jesus are too late. Here's what they don't know, though. They said, the world has gone after him. What they don't know is that Jesus' heart is breaking as he's going down this hill. We don't know that from John because John leaves this detail out. He leaves out the detail that God is crying on the side of the mountain as he moves his way into Jerusalem. Look with me on the screen, John 19, Luke 19.41. 
when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. How would you describe these tears? Are these tears of joy? No. Are these tears of fear? No. Our God doesn't fear anything. These are tears of appraisal. These are Jesus appraising the situation. They're tears of grief because he understands this crowd is only into the moment and they don't understand I'm here to rescue them from their sins. It's much bigger than Israel. And they're thinking it's all about their nation in Rome. And he begins weeping. So can you imagine? This crowd is cheering. There's never been a bigger crowd celebrating the arrival of the Messiah. And in the midst of it, his tears are streaming down his face because they're going to reject him. God is right in front of them, and they don't even know it. They didn't recognize their visitation is what Scripture says. Look with me on the screen because this is what Jesus said. If you had only known... Verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now we understand that in A.D. 70, Rome had it with Israel. And they wiped out Jerusalem, decimated it, killed everyone, sent them into the dispersion. And Israel never recovered until 1948. So what Jesus said as he's going down the mountainside was not celebration. It was tears of grief because people had stiff-armed him and rejected him. They wanted conquer Jesus He's bringing them deliverer Jesus. So far from being elated by the celebration, Jesus is grieved by the very fact that they've got a superficial attitude. He's just the Jesus of the moment. And eventually they're going to say, we've got no king but Jesus. We've got no king but Caesar. So here's my conclusion. This apparent reception is in reality a rejection because he doesn't measure up. As time bears out over the next four days, you'll see this on Good Friday if you're here. The crowd turns viciously against Jesus and rejects him. Why? He's no longer fun. He didn't fulfill their desires. It doesn't measure up. So what happens when Ken and Barbie really don't measure up to your expectations? What happens when you don't get the mansion and the Mercedes? Some people teach that. Prosperity gospel says health, wealth, and prosperity. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. To be sure, there is victory in Jesus, and there are definitely blessings and triumphs, but he didn't promise everybody a mansion and a Mercedes in this lifetime. What about when you don't get the world peace that you thought Jesus was going to bring? But he never said he was going to bring world peace in this lifetime. Eventually, he brings it. What about when your friends don't understand your faith decisions? Has it become temporary and convenient for the moment? Or do you stand up like Paul and say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? I think there's a reason that Paul wrote that in Romans 1. Romans 1.16 says this, 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There must have been people who were ashamed of the gospel for him to write that. There must have been people who found the Jesus of the moment and decided, no way, it's too tough, I'm not doing that. But Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the true disciple that Jesus is talking about. The one who takes his word and truly obeys his word. So this is what I understand Jesus to say. He did not say, take up your crown and follow me, did he? He said, take up your cross and follow me. This is what this crowd doesn't get. So here's where I'm going to challenge you this morning as we let you leave. We're going to just have some worship music before we leave. But just vegetate on this thought. If you're really willing to take off your cloak, your garment, and lay it there and submit yourself under the authority of the King of Kings, what does that look like in your life each week as you live it day in and day out? As your friends engage you in conversation, especially students, because I know you got it tough in school. My friends categorize people. Are you one of those? Not one of those Christians, are you? It's so easy to back away and see him as the Jesus of the moment as opposed to the God who never changes the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you recognize like Paul, I am not ashamed of this gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. He's the one that saves my soul. So I'm going to pray for you right now. I'm just going to ask you to pray along with me that God would cement this in our heart, that we would see him this way. Would you bow with me? Father, I'm asking for our church, for the entire fellowship of New Hope, for those who are in the first service, this group in the second service, Father, for all the adults downstairs right now, for the children in classes. God, make us a church that is bold on your behalf to never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to not be that group that sees you as an emotional high, Father, but rather, Father, we're rock solid in our faith that you measure us as your disciples because we abide in your word, that we do the things that you've called us to do and not waver to the left or to the right. God, we trust and take confidence that you will bless us as a result of this. I don't know what that blessing looks like, but you do. So in confidence, we just come before you and in submission, we... Father, we just lay ourselves before you. We lay what we own. We lay our cloaks before you. We recognize you as our king. A king who will return one day. But for now, Father, we live under that knowledge of submission. That we lay everything before you and say, Father, we are under your authority. Help us to be that bold, Father. I ask this in the mighty name of our soon-coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.